Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, the best podcast in the world, talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 44. Uh, BYO discussion prompts today. Swims to the mum she said, The artist who was a stockbroker turned painter is Gorgwin. This is a quote that Philip recited about the Mona Lisa. Oh, from Gorgwin. She is older than the rocks among which she sits. Like the vampire, she has been dead many times and learned the secrets of the grave, and has been a diver in deep seas, and keeps their fallen day about her, and trafficked for strange webs with eastern merchants, and as a leader was the mother of Helen of Troy, and as Saint Anne the mother of Mary, and all this has been to her but as the sound of lyres and flutes, and lives only in the delicacy with which it has, has moulded the changing liniments, and tinged the eyelids and the hands. Walter Pater. Who's this Walter Pater? And Trepper said she could not have eaten more ravenously if she were starving. Yep, heads up, Philip. Come to think of it, have there ever been any obese artists? <laughs> None whatsoever. There has never been an obese artist. Wow, good observation, and Trepper. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, there has. I'm one, actually. I'm not obese, but I'm a bit overweight. I'm a bit overweight. I weigh 90-something. 90 92-ish at the moment. Kilo, kilos. Kilograms. Um, which is... I don't know. It's not crazy a lot, but I should be probably 10 less than that. I should weigh 10% less than what I weigh, I reckon. Um, but according to my doctor, that's enough to make me technically obese. Technically. <clears throat> um, so there you go I'm an obese artist <laughs> Jan Brunt said, but hey I'm not a great one so hey maybe you got a point um, what am I saying Jan Brunt says a minor correction for you Ander that's me you mentioned that Philip's Paris is like Hemingway's Paris while I'm sure there are many similarities their era that Philip spends in Paris is commonly known as La Belle Epoque the Beautiful Era, and is about 25 years before Hemingway's expat days. You mentioned Midnight in Paris, and it's worth noting that La Belle Epoque is the era that Owen Wilson's girlfriend wants to time travel to because it, to her, is much more beautiful, romantic era than the 1920s. Okay. Is there really 25 years difference? I thought we were more like 5 years, 10 years maybe difference. Um... I know Hemingway went in the early 20s to Paris. I'm Googling this as I speak. When did Hemingway go to Paris? Um, 1921. Okay, so he was there from the very early 20s. But the, the Belle Epoque era... See, I thought that was, that, that was more like in the 1800s, like the late 1800s. Um... I could be wrong. So, La Belle Epoque, Epoque is from 1871 through to 1914. See, to me, 1914 is a very different looking era from 1871. By 1914, uh, 
you know, people aren't wearing big white wigs and powder all over their cheeks with rosy red tint. Whereas I feel like 1871, they probably were. Um, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Now, I, yeah, but you are right. It was in that era because, um, you know, what I think I'm forgetting is, I know this book was published 1915. I think it was 1915, wasn't it? But it's set at the turn of the century so it's set right around 1900 um, and I keep thinking that we're at like 1910 1912-ish because I don't know I just got that in my head but no you're right it, we're, we're good we're good 10 12 years before that so if let's say at the moment it's 1900 in the book Hemingway doesn't really get to Paris for another 21 years so yeah good point good point completely different eras um, though still I am feeling it. Th this one is feeling the most like Hemingway's Paris I will say that like if you've read um, uh, The Sun Also Rises Movable Feast um, you know the Hemingway ones that are set in Paris and it is very much a bunch of artists moving from one cafe to the next, you know, and cafe was sort of like a bar or a speakeasy sort of type thing in Paris at that time. It was it was nightlife. Ca a cafe was nightlife. Uh, they had dancing, they had alcohol, they had meals, they had coffee, of course, uh, and and they'd go from one to the next, you know, and it was just a big social evening every night, and it was just artists dancing and drinking and and talking intellectual. That's the Hemingway's Paris that I I know from his books and like yeah I do feel like these guys Philip and his current cohort are starting to like move in that direction you know they are starting to feel like that they're artists they're at the cafes they're jumping from one place to the next they're debating art so it's it I, I still do stand by we are it is feeling the most like Hemingway's Paris to me um but no, you're right. Different eras. Different, uh, what was the word? Epochs. All right. Um, I mean, there's a whole world war that happens in between one and the other. So, yeah, that would be very different times when I think of it like that. Let's keep reading, hey? Enough of me talking rubbish. Let me read this chapter. Oh, God, it's so long. The chapters are getting longer and longer in this book. Why do they do this? Where they start with, like, one, two, three-page chapters and set a kind of tone for the book. Like, they've got a dozen or so chapters at the start which go for just a couple of pages. And then, like, they just... They get this chapter creep where suddenly the chapters are going for nine pages, then ten, then twelve... So come on, man! Can't you plan a novel out to just have consistent chapters? That's all I ask. A bit of planning. Anyway, I think any any listener to this podcast knows by now that that's a pet peeve of mine when chapter lengths are too varied within one novel. Philip, <clears throat> sorry, this is chapter forty-five. Philip soon realised that the spirit with which the spirit which informed his friends was Cronshaw's. 
It was from him that Lawson got his paradoxes and even Clutton, who strained after individuality expressed himself in the terms he had insensibly acquired from the older man. It was his ideas that they bandied about a table, and on his authority they formed their judgments. They made up for the respect with which unconsciously they treated him by laughing at his foibles and lamenting his vices. Of course, poor old Cronshaw will do... Never do any good, they said. He's quite hopeless. They prided themselves on being alone in appreciating his genius, and though with the contempt of youth for the foils of middle age, follies of middle age, they patronised him among themselves, they did not fail to look upon it as a feather in their caps if he had chosen a time when only one was there to be particularly wonderful. Cronshaw never came to Graveyard's. For the last four years he had lived in squalid conditions with a woman whom only Lawson had seen once in a tiny apartment on the sixth floor of one of the most dilapidated houses on the Quay de Grands Augustins. Lawson described with gusto the filth, the untidiness, the litter, and the stink nearly blew her head off. Not at dinner, Lawson, expostulated one of the others, but he would not deny himself the pleasure of giving picturesque details of the odours which met his nostril with a fierce delight in which his own realism he described the woman who had opened the door for him. She was dark, small and fat, quite young, with black hair, and seemed always on the point of coming down. She wore a slatternly blouse and no corsets, with her red cheeks, large sensual mouth and shining lewd eyes. She reminded you of the Bohemini in the Louvre by Franz Howells. She had a flaunting vulgarity which amused and yet horrified. A scrubby, unwashed baby was playing on the floor. It was known that the slut deceived Cronshaw with the most worthless ragamuffins of the quarter, and it was a mystery to the ingenious youths who absorbed his wisdom over a café table that Cronshaw, with his keen intellect and his passion for beauty, could ally himself to such a creature. But he seemed to revel in the coarseness of her language and would often report some phrase which reeked of the gutter. He referred to her ironically as la fille de mon concierge. Contra was very poor. He earned a bare subsistence by writing on the exhibitions of pictures for one or two English papers. And he did a certain amount of translating. He had been on the staff of an English paper in Paris but had been dismissed for drunkenness. He still, however, did odd jobs for it, describing sales at the Hotel Drouot, or the reviews at music halls. The life of Paris had got into his bones, and he could not change it, notwithstanding its squalor, drudgery, and hardship for any other in the world. He remained there all through the year, even in summer, even when everyone he knew was away, and felt himself only at ease within a mile of the Boulevard Saint-Michel, but the curious thing was that he had never learned to speak French, passably, and he kept in his shabby clothes, bought at La Belle Jardiniere, an ineradicably English appearance. He was a man who would have made a success of life a century and a half ago when conversation was a passport to good company and inebriety no bar. I ought to have lived in the 1800s, he said to himself. What I want is a patron. I should have published my poems by subscription and dedicated them to a nobleman, I longed to compose rhymed couplets upon the poodle of a countess. My soul yearns for the love of chambermaids and the conversation of bishops. He quoted the romantic roller. Jesus venu trop dans un monde trop vieux. He liked new faces and he took a fancy to Philip. He seemed to achieve the difficult feat 
of talking, just enough to suggest conversation and not too much to prevent monologue. Philip was captivated. He did not realise that little that Cronshaw said was new. His personality in conversation had a curious power. He had a beautiful and sonorous voice and a manner of putting things which was irresistible to youth. All he said seemed to excite thought, and often on the way home Lawson and Philip would walk to one, to and from one another's hotels, discussing some point which a chance word of Cronshaw had suggested. It was disconcerting to Philip when he when had a youthful eagerness for results that Cronshaw's poetry hardly came up to expectation. It had never been published in a volume, but most of it had appeared in periodicals, and after a good deal of persuasion, Cronshaw brought down a bundle of pages torn out of the Yellow Book, the Saturday Review and other journals, on each of which was a poem. Philip was taken aback to find that most of them reminded him either of Henley or of Swinburne. It needed to splend the splendour of Cronshaw's delivery to make them personal. He expressed his disappointment to Lawson, who carelessly repeated his words, and next time Philip went to the Closerie de Lilas, the poet turned to him with a sleek smile. I hear you don't think much of my verses. Philip was embarrassed. I don't know about that, he answered. I enjoyed reading them very much. Do not attempt to spare my feelings, returned Cronshaw with a wave of his fat hand. I do not attach any exaggerated importance to my poetical works. Life is there to be lived rather than to be written about. My aim is to search out the manifold experience that is offers, wringing from each moment what of emotion it presents. I look upon my writing as a graceful accomplishment which does not absorb, but rather adds pleasure to existence, and as for posterity, damn posterity. Philip smiled, for it leaped to one's eyes that the artist in life had produced no more than a wretched daub. Cronshaw looked at him meditatively and filled his glass. He sent the waiter for a packet of cigarettes. You are amused because I talk in this fashion, and you know that I am poor and live in an attic with a vulgar trollop who deceives me with hairdressers and garçons de café. I translate wretched books for the British public and write articles about contemptible pictures which deserve not even to be abused. But pray tell me, what is the meaning of life? I say that's rather a difficult question. Why don't you give the answer yourself? No, because it's worthless and you, unless you discover it yourself. But what do you suppose you are in the world for? Philip had never asked himself, and he thought for a moment before replying, Oh, I don't know, I suppose to do one's duty and make the best possible use of one's faculties and avoid hurting other people. In short, to do unto others as you would they, as they, as you would they should do, to do unto others as you would they should do unto you. What? In short, I'm going to read that again. This is actually what it says. In short, to do unto others as you would they should do unto you. I suppose so. Christianity. No, it isn't, said Philip indignantly. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It's just abstract morality. But there's no such thing as abstract morality. In that case, supposing under the influence of liquor you left your purse behind when you leave here and I picked it up, why do you imagine that I should return it to you if there's not a fear of the police? It's the dread of hell if you sin and the hope of heaven if you are virtuous. But I believe in neither. That may be, neither did Kant when he devised the categorical imperative you have thrown aside a creed, but you have preserved the ethic which was based upon it. To all intents, you are a Christian still, and if there is a God in heaven, 
you will undoubtedly receive your reward. The Almighty can hardly be such a fool as the churches make out. If you keep his laws, I don't think he can care a packet of pins whether you believe in him or not. But if I left my purse behind, you would certainly return it to me, said Philip. Not from motives of abstract morality, but only from fear of the police. It's a thousand to one that the police would never find out. My ancestors have lived in a civilised state so long that the fear of the police has eaten into my bones. The daughter of my concierge would not hesitate for a moment. You answer that she belongs to the criminal classes? Not at all. She is merely devoid of vulgar prejudice. But then does that... That does away with honour and virtue and goodness and decency and everything, said Philip. Have you ever committed a sin? I don't know, I suppose so, answered Philip. You speak with the lips of a dissenting minister. I have never committed a sin. Cronshaw in his shabby great coat with the collar turned up and his hat well down on his head with his red fat face and his little gleaming eyes looked extraordinarily comic. But Philip was too much in earnest to laugh. Have you ever done anything you regret? How can I regret when what I did was inevitable, asked Cronshaw in return. But that's fatalism. The illusion which man has that he has free, that his will is free is so deeply rooted that I am ready to accept it. I act as though I were a free agent, but when an action is performed it is clear that all the forces of the universe from all eternity conspired to cause it. And nothing I could do could have prevented it. It was inevitable. If it was good, I can claim no merit. If it was bad, I can accept no censure. My brain reels, said Philip. Have some whiskey, returned Cronshaw, passing over the bottle. There's nothing like it for clearing the head. You must expect to be thick-witted if you insist upon drinking beer. Philip shook his head and Cronshaw proceeded. You're not a bad fellow, but you won't drink. Sobriety disturbs conversation. But when I speak of good and bad... Philip saw he was taking up the thread of his discourse. I speak conventionally. I attach no meaning to those words. I refuse to make a hierarchy of human actions and ascribe worthiness to some and ill repute to others. The terms vice and virtue have no, signific no, signific no signification for me. I do not confer praise or blame. I accept I am the measure of all things. I am the centre of the world. But there are one or two other people in the world, objected Philip. I speak only for myself. I know them only as they limit my activities. Round each of them, to the world turns, and each one for himself is the centre of the universe. My right over, the ex over them extends only as far as my power. What I can do is the only limit of what I may do. Because we are gregarious, we live in society, and society holds together by means of force, force of arms, that is the policeman, and force of public opinion, that is Mrs. Grundy. You have society on one hand, and... The individual, on the other, each is an organism striving for self-preservation. It is, it is might against might. I stand alone, bound to accept society and not unwilling, since in return for the taxes I pay, it protects me, a weakling against the tyranny of others stronger, others stronger than I am. But I submit to its laws because I must. I do not acknowledge their justice. I do not know justice. I only know power. And when I have paid for the policeman who protects me, and if I live in a country where conscription is in force, served in the army which guards my house and land from the invader, I am quits with society. For the rest I counter it might, its might with my willingness, wiliness. It makes laws for its self-preservation, and if I break them it imprisons me or kills me. It has the might to do so, and therefore the right. 
If I break the laws, I will accept the vengeance of the state, but I will not regard it as a punishment, nor shall I feel myself convicted of wrongdoing. Society tempts me to its service by honours and riches and the good opinion of my fellows, but I am indifferent to their good opinion. I despise honours, and I can do very well without riches. But if everyone thought like you, things would go to pieces at once. I have nothing to do with others. I am only concerned with myself. I take advantage of the fact that the majority of mankind are led by certain rewards to do things which directly or indirectly tend to my convenience. It seems to me an awfully selfish way to look at things, said Philip. But are you under the impression that men ever do anything except for selfish reasons? Yes. It is impossible that they should. You will find, as you grow older, that the first thing needful to make the world a tolerable place to live in is to recognize the inevitable selfishness of humanity you demand unselfishness from others which is the preposterous claim that they should sacrifice their desires to yours why should they when you are reconciled to the fact that each is for himself in the world you will ask less from your fellows they will not disappoint you and you will look upon them more charitably men seek but one thing in life their pleasure no 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 cried philip Cronshaw chuckled. You rear like a frightened cop because I use the word to which your Christianity ascribes a pre a deep deprecatory meaning. You have a hierarchy of values, pleasure is at the bottom of the ladder, and you speak with a little thrill of self satisfaction, of duty, charity, truthfulness. You think pleasure is only in the senses. The wretched slaves who manufactured your morality despised a satisfaction which they had small means of enjoying. You would not be so frightened if I had spoken of happiness instead of pleasure. It sounds less shocking, and your mind wanders from the sty of Epicurus to his garden. But I will speak of pleasure, for I see that men aim at that. I do not know that they aim at happiness. It is pleasure that lurks in the practice of every one of your virtues. Man performs actions because they are good for him and when they are good for other people as well they are thought virtuous if he finds pleasure in giving alms he is charitable if he finds pleasure in helping others he is benevolent if he finds pleasure in working for society he is public spirited but it, it is for your private pleasure that you give twopence to a beggar as much as it is for my private pleasure that i drink another whiskey and soda I, less of a humbug than you, neither applaud myself for my pleasure nor demand your admiration. But have you never known people do these do things they didn't want to instead of things they did? No, you put your question foolishly. What you mean is that people accept an immediate pain rather than an immediate pleasure. The objection is as foolish as your manner of putting it. It is clear that men accept an immediate pain rather than immediate pleasure, but only because they expect a greater pleasure in the future. Often the pleasure is illusory, but their error is in calculation is no refutation of the rule. You are puzzled because you cannot get over the idea that pleasures are only of the senses, but child, a man who dies for his country, dies because he likes it as surely as a man eats pickled cabbage because he likes it. It is a law of creation. It if it were possible for men to prefer pain to pleasure, the human race would have long since become extinct. But if all that is true, cried Philip, what is the use of anything? If you take away duty and goodness and beauty, why are we brought into the world? Here comes the gorgeous east to answer, suggest an answer, smiled Cronshaw. He pointed to two persons who at that moment opened the door of the cafe and with a blast of cold air entered. 
They were Levantines, itinerant vendors of cheap rugs, and each bore on his arm a bundle. It was Sunday evening, and the cafe was very full. They passed among the tables, and in that atmosphere, heavy and discoloured with tobacco spoke, rank with humanity, they seemed to bring an air of mystery. They were clad in European shabby clothes, their thin great coats were threadbare, but each wore a tarbouche. Their faces were grey with cold, one was of middle age, with a black beard, but the other was a youth of eighteen, with a face deeply scarred by smallpox and with only one eye. They passed by, Cronshaw and Philip. Allah is great, and Muhammad is his prophet, said Cronshaw impressively. The elder advanced with a cr- cringing smile, like a mongrel used f- to blows. With a sidelong glance at the door, and a quick surreptitious movement, he showed a pornographic picture. Are you Mazarid Dean, the merchant of Alexandria, or is it from far Baghdad that you bring your goods? Oh, my uncle, and yonder one-eyed youth, do I see in him one of the three kings of whom Shurhazaidi told stories to her lord? The peddler's smile grew more ingratiating, though he understood no word of what Cronshaw said, and like a conjurer, he produced a sandalwood box. Nay, show us the priceless web of eastern looms, quoth Cronshaw, for I would point a moral and adorn a tale. The Levantine unfolded a tablecloth, red and yellow, vulgar, hideous and grotesque. Thirty-five francs, he said. Oh, my uncle, this cloth knew not the weavers of Samarkand, and those colours were never made in the vats of Bokhara. Twenty-five francs, smiled the peddler obsequiously. Ultima Thule was the place of its manufacture, even Birmingham, the place of my birth. Fifteen francs, cringed the bearded man. Bearded man. Get thee gone, fellow, said Cronshaw. May wild asses defile the grave of thy maternal grandmother. Imperturbably, but smiling no more, the Levantine passed with his wares to another table. Cronshaw turned to Philip. Have you ever been to the Cluny, the museum? There you will see Persian carpets of the most exquisite hue and of a pattern, the beautiful intricacy of which delights and amazes the eye. In them you will see the mystery and the sensual beauty of the East, the roses of Haziv, Hafiz, and the wine cup of Omar. But presently you will see more. You were asking just now what was the meaning of life. Go and look at those Persian carpets, and one of these days the answer will come to you. You are cryptic, said Philip. I am drunk, answered Cronshaw. All right, there we go, another chapter down. Cronshaw is the worst kind of person on the planet, and I wish he would shut his stupid face. Have your say about this chapter over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.